Once again, I'd like to uh, just welcome each and every one of you to our service today here indoors. And uh, those of you who are watching online, we're very blessed to have you part of our church family. Well, I'd to, uh, this is a good day for you to be here if this is your first Sunday at uh, Grace Community Church. We're beginning a brand new series entitled, My Ebenezer. Now, you have to admit, that's a pretty cool name, right? And we're not talking about Ebenezer Scrooge, like I said last week. But what is an Ebenezer? Well, it's a stone of remembrance. You see the picture up there of that Ebenezer? A stone of remembrance. A remembering what God has done for us, His provision and His salvation. Let me offer you some historical, biblical context uh, to the word Ebenezer. The Hebrew word means, quote, the stone of help. And in the Old Testament with the Israelites, after a long period of trouble and tribulation, a consequence of Israel's repeated disobedience, Israel repented, and the word repent means to literally turn back. You're walking one direction and you turn around and walk the other. So Israel's repentance... Uh, under the leadership of a brand new priest and judge by the name of Samuel. Samuel said, listen, get rid of your foreign gods, determined to only obey God, no undivided hearts. Now, Israel had an arch rival, one of many arch rivals, but these were the Philistines. And the Philistines marched on Mizpah and were defeated soundly by the Israelites. Samuel marked the victory with these words. It's 1 Samuel 7, 12. Samuel then took a large stone and placed it between the towns of Mizpah and Jeshanah. He named it Ebenezer, which means the stone of help. For he said, up to this point, the Lord has helped us. The Lord has helped us. So after this great victory at Mizpah, Samuel placed this large stone and at the place where the restoration began. He publicly declared and dedicated it as a monument to God's help, God's faithfulness, God's eternal covenant. As the people of God continued their ordinary, everyday, walking around lives, the stone stood there visible to all who passed by, a reminder of judgment and repentance and mercy, and restoration. The Ebenezer Stone represented a fresh beginning, a chance to renew, to recommit to God's love and purpose. I wonder if you have any stones of remembrance in your lives, any Ebenezers. So when I was um, 16 years old, I went to a Youth for Christ rally in San Diego uh, with our youth group. And there that night, I went forward and I prayed to ask Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior. When I got home, I told my mother and father about that uh, experience. And my mom said, son, go get your Bible. So I went into my bedroom, got my Bible, brought it back. She said, here, open it up at the beginning. I want you to write in here the date. It was February, I forget, February what, 1965. And I want you to write the date and the time that you said yes to Jesus, that you asked Jesus to be Lord, your Lord and Savior. That writing in my Bible 
as a teenager was an Ebenezer for me. It was a stone of remembrance. I can go back to that Bible today. It's in my office at home. I can go back to that Bible today and see where I wrote that date when I said yes to Jesus. Now, my wife has this incredible Bible. Honey, stand up and show, show your Bible. This Bible is filled with stones of remembrance. It's got place cards, and it's got notes, and it's got flowers, and it's got all kinds of stuff. And each one of those things, she can tell you what each one of them meant and what it was and why it was important to her. Those are stones of remembrance. I have my mom's Bible at home when she passed away in 2007, and my mom's Bible is filled with all of these Ebenezer's, reminders. Each one of her children and her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren, the dates they were born and the dates they were born again, right? And she has all of those reminders in her Bible. I remember one woman came to my office years ago at Hope, and she struggled with um, feeling forgiven for her past sins, for the things that she had done as a teenager and as a young person. And I reminded her about this passage. And in my office, I had uh, several little stones because I had preached on this passage before. And I gave her one of those little stones, and I said, Jess, I want you to keep this, and I want you to remember. And, I, and, I, and then I quoted the verse, you know, if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I said, Jess, do you confess your sins of the past? Yes, I do. Then you need to receive this as truth from God's word. And here's a stone I placed it in her hand. I want you to keep this stone in your purse or by your bed or wherever and to re constantly remind you that all of your sins of the past have been forgiven. They're as far as the east is from the west, the depths of the ocean, and there's a sign posted said, no fishing. Your sins are forgiven. That's a stone of remembrance. It reminds me of Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I strain to reach the end of the race and receive the prize for which God, through Jesus Christ, is calling us to heaven. So these next few weeks before Easter, I want to set for each of us these Ebenezer stones to serve as a reminder that you are forgiven, that you have chosen a new direction, that God is faithful and trustworthy. And so we're going to look at these Ebenezers. What are these stones that remind us who we are? For this series of messages, we'll be looking at these stones. And there's two things that kind of are an umbrella over all that we're going to be talking about in the next five weeks. And those two things are this. Uh, last uh, Sunday, after the second service, we had a luncheon for people that are new to our church that wanted to hear more about Grace Community Church. And so I went through the history and all that kind of stuff. But I, what I told them is what I tell every person that comes to an evangelical covenant church, and it's this. There are two hills that we will die on. Now, we believe a lot of things, but we'll have disagreements about a lot of things. When is Jesus going to return? How much water you should use in baptism? We'll talk about all those things. We'll have disagreements about those two things. But there's two hills that we will always die on. Number one, the Bible is the Word of God. Number two, Every person can experience new life 
in Jesus Christ. Those are the two major stones, Ebenezer, that we will always hold to. And so those are going to be kind of an umbrella over the next five weeks talking about the Ebenezers of our faith. So Ebenezer number one, the Bible is the word of God. Now, let me ask you a question. Who do you listen to? Who are the voices that you hear that form what you think, what you believe, and how you live? Here's what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who builds its house upon sand. When the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. My sister Joyce and her husband and their young baby uh, were in uh, living in a house in San, uh, San Fernando Valley in 1971. On this particular day, there was a 7.3 Richter earthquake. Now, Dave and Joyce had this little house. It was a small house, but if you're familiar with Los Angeles, there's lots of hills. Everywhere there's lots of hills, similar to kind of uh, Tucson. And all these hills, uh, they would put houses on them. And sometimes these houses, and you've seen pictures of these, would be here, and then out the front of the house, they would have these posts down on top of pylons. Does that sound familiar to you? You've seen that? So you have these pylons buried in the ground, put in a footing, of course, and then these four-by-fours, and that would go up to the house, and that would be the edge of the house. Well, Joyce and Dave lived in a house like that. And when that earthquake came, guess what? The whole front of their house, which was their bedroom, fell off and started sliding down the house. Can you imagine? It was like six in the morning. Can you imagine? What was that? And why do we feel like we're sliding down a hill, you know? Now, thankfully, they were all okay. But that's what it's like when you don't build your house on something firm. When you listen to voices that aren't going to be the rock-solid truth. Jesus is saying, be careful who you listen to, who you follow. Build a life on foundation of stone that upholds and sustains because not all voices are valid. Now, Christians are not bashful about saying that it is the Bible that we build our lives on. This is our Ebenezer, Ebenezer number one. We believe it's the authoritative, reliable, inspired, God-breathed, infallible source of truth. The Bible is our owner's manual for our faith. Now, here's the dilemma when we talk about that. As Christ followers, we hear from a lot of people in the world, and you've heard this all of your lives. We've heard this from all around the world. Why stake your life on the Bible? It's only one of many holy books. There's only one, there's, there's many scriptures out there. I mean, there's the Koran, the Book of Mormon, Tao Te Ching, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, 
Path Made Clear by Oprah Winfrey. You know, there's all of these holy books out there that you can read and say, this is my book. This is what I'm staking my life on. Now, the world has told us for many, all of my life I've heard this, that the Bible is filled with many errors. How can you rely on something that was written over a 1,600-year period by 60 different authors, and somehow, some way, it all fits together, and it all has the same message? That's just ridiculous. That's outlandish. And also, people will say, and you've heard them say this, that the Bible is filled with absolutely outlandish, incredible stories. Stories are just not believable, right? It's like, like reading a tabloid in the grocery store. I know you don't buy them, but you look at the headlines. I know you do, okay? So don't say you don't, okay? So this like tabloid, like, like some of these I've read. Elvis is alive and well in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and he's working as a greeter at a Walmart, okay? How about this one? Pregnant woman gives birth to a 68-pound baby boy. Or this, donkey speaks to a man. Or this, a 90-year-old woman gives birth to a son. Or this, a large fish swallows a man and spits him out alive three days later, right? Yuck, yuck, right? Now, if you attended Sunday school growing up, the last three of those headlines are right out of the Bible. My question is this. Why would you believe the last three and not the first two? Or maybe you do. I mean, Elvis would be 86 years old right now, right? A bigger question is this. How do we know the Bible is reliable? Can we really trust it? Is it really God's word or just a wonderful collection of stories? Is it the absolute truth? Is it the only truth? We're going to put the Bible on test today. Put it to the test. If this is our Ebenezer, Ebenezer number one, and we're going to trust in this, We've got to be able to see, say that it's reliable, that it's true. So for those of you who are left-brained people like me, the logic, the analytical part of this message, you're going to love this. For those of you who are right-brained, you're very intuitive, you're very, you know, you're very feeling, or you're going to like this as well. So I want you to put your thinking caps on. I'm going to, uh, I'm not going to say that the Bible is reliable because it says so. It claims to be inspired. That's a circular argument, and that goes nowhere, Right? That's far too easy for us. I want to put the Bible to the test. Ask some tough questions and see how the Bible stacks up. Here's the first big question. Is the Bible historically accurate? Some say that modern science and archaeology have proven the Bible is full of flaws. Actually, the opposite is true. The Bible has passed the test of history with flying colors. The Bible is filled with thousands of people and names and places and events. And this has given skeptics plenty of ammunition. But the interesting thing is that the historical data has pointed overwhelmingly to the accuracy of the Bible. And where there have been gaps or contradictions, archaeological findings have pointed to the Bible's accuracy time and time and time again. I, I would say this, if there's something that seems inaccurate and archaeology hasn't proven it, just wait. <laughs> it's going to happen. They're going to find it, right? So all of these things are happening. I challenge each and every one of you to dig around on your own. I, I don't take my word for it. 
dig around, you'll not find hundreds, but thousands of archaeological finds in the Middle East that support names, events, places in the Bible. These artifacts are being dug up all the time, and they're catching the world by surprise. Now, this happened uh, several years ago, but in U.S. News and World Report, October 25th, 1999, it was a headline, Is the Bible True? And the byline was Extraordinary Insights from Archaeology and History. This is not... Christianity Today, right? This is the U.S. News and World Report. The key word there is extraordinary. And let me give you some examples, just a couple of them, some ancient and some more recent. So the Bible in the Old Testament makes three dozen references to an enemy nation of God's people called the Hittites. How many of you have heard of the Hittites? Okay, most of you that have been around the Bible have heard of the Hittites. The only problem has been that historians for hundreds of years have never found a trace of the Hittite nation. Never. Their conclusion? The Bible isn't credible. Then, in 1906, archaeologists dug up artifacts and confirmed the existence of the Hittite nation. The capital city was found along with 40 other Hittite cities. Wow. Now, more recently... The Bible mentions that a man by the name of Belshazzar was king of Babylon. If you've read your Bible, we studied this when we studied Jeremiah. We heard that name. Historians have contended over the years that a man named Nabonitus was the king at that time. The conclusion, the Bible is inaccurate. Guess what happened in 1956? Archaeologists unearthed three stones, Ebenezer's, three stones that solved the problem. These stones contain the following information. Nabonidus went out to war with his armies, so he installed his son as king in his absence. His son's name was Belshazzar. Let me give you another example. The Bible talks about David, King David. Now, that's a name that we're all familiar with that has been with us since antiquity. The problem is there is no archaeological record that a David or a King David ever existed. Nothing has ever been confirmed that David lived. That has been the ace in the hole for skeptics and historians for hundreds of years. A comparison would be 2,000 years from now that no one would have ever heard of Joe Biden or Donald Trump, right? It's just ridiculous. Guess what happened in 1993? Archaeologists found a 9th century B.C. stone, another Ebenezer, a 9th century B.C. stone with the name of an Israelite warrior king on it that killed a giant-sized man by the name of Goliath, right in the stone, the name David. Critics scrambled with that one. One more. The Bible talks about a man named Joshua blowing his trumpet, bringing down the walls of Jericho. You went to Sunday school. Okay, I can hear that. You can guess the problem. No evidence that Jericho ever existed or its walls, right? Then in 2011, archaeologists found the city of Jericho underneath layers of dirt and rubble, and what shocked them was the fact that the walls fell down in a very unusual way, out from the city, down like this. Every other archaeological finding of a city, ancient city, where they were under siege or they were destroyed, right, you guessed it, always fell like this. This one city, the only one in antiquity has ever been found like that, all the wells, walls fell down like that. Amazing. 
You could spend, I could spend hours. I love this stuff. <laughs> Hundreds of examples just like this. Here's the conclusion skeptics and historians alike are making. Quote from that article in U.S. News and World Report. In extraordinary ways, modern, modern archaeology has affirmed the historical core of the Old and New Testaments. U.S. News and World Report. Acclaimed archaeologist Nelson Gluck said this, and I quote, it may categorically be stated that no archaeological discovery has ever refuted a biblical reference. Can you say that about any other book or any other book of antiquity? Absolutely not. Now, just as comparison, and we could do this all day long. In fact, I have done this all day long before. The Book of Mormon mentions in great detail a vast civilization in Americas from 600 B.C. to uh, 400 A.D., about a thousand-year period. Name of tr- names of tribes, cities, people, rivers, etc. are included in the Book of Mormon. But not one historian inside or outside the Mormon church has ever been able to produce a single artifact or piece of evidence to substantiate anything in the Book of Mormon. Zero percent versus 100 percent. You do the math. The Bible alone has passed the test of history with flying colors. Maybe you're thinking, okay, so what? The Bible's historically accurate. So is the Encyclopedia Britannica, for the most part. Anybody remember what that is? Yeah. No, it's called Google now, right? Okay. Well, that leads us to a second question. Is the Bible inspired? Is it God-breathed? Is this book a bunch of just religious stories penned by people hundreds of years after it happened and they kind of revised history? Or is this a book inspired by God himself? I don't know about you, but we need to know this. I I love this kind of objective thinking. Now, there's a lot at stake here. Now, when the Bible, the Bible is not a history book. But when it speaks of history, it's accurate. The Bible is not a science book. But when it speaks of science, it's accurate. I'll give you one example. Again, I love this stuff. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. The Bible says, God sits above the circle of the earth. Okay, that's a cool verse, right? God sits above the circle of the earth. That word in Hebrew means sphere, okay? When was that written? 700 years before Christ. 2100 years before Christopher Columbus said he discovered that the earth was round. For 2,100 years, we knew the answer, and we didn't get it, right? Okay, that's just one example. Of, and again, we could do that all day long. So here we go. Is this book just a bunch of stories, or is there something else? Well, there's a lot of ways we could go here, but I just want to point us to one final answer, and it's called this, Fulfilled Prophecies. Because the Bible was written over a 1,600-year period by over 60 different authors, many predictions can be tested and verified. Now, what's interesting is that these writers went out on a serious limb. Honey, could you bring me the water, please, babe? They boldly predicted what God would do. Not a vague horoscope prediction, you know, not a fortune cookie, thank you, honey, that says you're going to meet somebody new today. But an absolute psychic-like prediction. Now, studies have shown that psychic predictions, including Nostradamus and Gene Dixon, are correct approximately 6% of the time. Come on, guys, a goat could do that. 
right? I'm not talking about Tom Brady. I'm talking about a real goat. A goat could, I, I could make, a, I could make a thousand predictions and six of them, a hundred predictions and six of them would come true. I, I, I guarantee it. That, that's just not a big deal, right? So, uh, listen to these prophecies. I'll just pick out, I just picked out a few of them in the Bible. First of all, there's 191 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. 191 prophecies about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The majority of them were given 700 years before the birth of Christ. They predicted in precise, specific detail things like ancestry, the city he would be born in, how he would be born, the time in history he would be born, who the king was when he was born, where he would live, and how much the person, Judas, would be given to betray him, 30 pieces of silver. All of this is in the Old Testament. Psalm twenty-two sixteen says that his hands and feet would be pierced. Verse 14 says his bones would be out of joint. All clear references to the crucifixion. What's interesting about that, written 600, 700 years before Christ, is that res, uh, crucifixion was not used as a way of, a means of death until the first century B.C. Nobody had ever heard of crucifixion. Nobody had ever done it. And yet it was talked about 600 years before. Scholars and statisticians have calculated the odds of one man fulfilling just eight of those prophecies. And remember, there's almost 200 of them. The odds of fulfilling one in eight are 10 to the 17th power. That's a one with 17 zeros after it. Wow. It just doesn't work. It's mathematically impossible. But yet, all of these prophecies have come true. Let me give you an example. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, 700 B.C., names Cyrus the king as the one who will command the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, okay? People probably thought he was nuts because the temple was fully built and fully functioning when Isaiah wrote that prophecy. A hundred years later, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, and we studied this and we studied Jeremiah, flattened the city of Jerusalem and the temple. In 539 B.C., 161 years after Isaiah's prophecy, a king named Cyrus issued a decree for the rebuilding of the temple. How could Isaiah have known this over 160 years before it happened and known his name? All this was, by the way, verified by the Dead Sea Scrolls. Another one. The Old Testament book of Ezekiel predicted in 592 that the city of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, would be utterly destroyed and no city would ever be built on the land again. There are no doubt the people of Ezekiel's day that thought the man had gone nuts. At that time, Tyre was a thriving, dynamic city. It'd be like saying that in 20 years, Phoenix will just be, uh, you know, a flat, you know, golf course and nothing else. It's just impossible. Tyre was flattened 13 years later. And if you go to the Holy Land today, all you see are flat rocks which once provided the foundation for the great city, never rebuilt for over 2,600 years. Question, are the hundreds of fulfilled prophecies all just a big cosmic coincidence? <laughs> There's no way. I mean, you can check them out. And again, don't just take my word for this. You do some study on your own. So what's the conclusion? How do we account for all of this? To me, there's only one logical conclusion. The Bible is what it says it is. The inspired word of God. 2 Peter 1.21 No prophecy ever came from what a person wanted to say, but people led by the Holy Spirit spoke words 
from God. Friends, this is no ordinary book. The prophecies in the Bible super, supernaturally confirm its uniqueness. No other book, no other ancient book even comes close. One last question. Is the Bible life-changing? Now think for a moment of yourself. Has this book, the reading of it, the believing of it, and the living it, has this transformed your life? Now, I'm going to ask you to do something weird. If it has, I want you to stand up. Just maybe six or seven of you. Okay, that's enough. Okay, okay, I get it. I get it. You're good. Now, you saw those people stand up. If you have any questions about this, go and, go and ask one of them. Go and ask one of them. Say, really? This ancient book? This has transformed your life? Ask them. See what they have to say. The answer to the question, has this Bible book changed my life, depends on what you do with it. If it sits on a shelf and gathers dust, now I recognize that we all have our, our U version and we all have our phones and all of that, but if you just share, read it occasionally, like a newspaper, really it does nothing for you. But if you take it seriously, if this word gets inside of you, it will change your life. I guarantee it. I have seen this book's wisdom turn marriages around hundreds of times. I have seen this book keep people from financial ruin, show people how to be spared from an eternity in hell. On the other hand, and this is going to sound weird, but on the other hand, in my 40 years of ministry as a pastor, you've got to please listen to this, I've seen a lot of human wreckage, including part of my own. A lot of wounded people who made wrong decisions. And every time, it's because they violated the clear teachings of this book. Every time. No exceptions. Is the Bible life-changing? It all depends on what you do with it. It tells us why our lives and our world is so messed up. And it always points us back to God's permanent Logos solution, Jesus Christ, every time. Jesus told us to build our lives on this book, this foundation of stone, because he loves us and knows what is best for us. This is what the scripture says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Some of you have been waiting for this scripture because you know it well. All scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Are you building your life on this Ebenezer, on this stone of remembrance? Is this where you get your truth? If not, where? Your experience, a guru, Oprah, <laughs> Book of Mormon, the Koran, your buddy from junior high school? Here's a warning. Choose any God, any truth you want, but choose wisely, for you'll have to live in his kingdom forever. So I want to give you something practical as we close.
three action steps. Some of you are already doing this, but hear this. First action step, get a Bible. If you don't have one, you talk to our ushers and we'll give you a brand new one today. Number two, get into it. Don't just buy, just don't, don't just have one and have it sit on the shelf. Get into it. It's like our owner's manual. Where do I start, Pastor Dwayne? Well, start either with the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John, either one. Also, we have starting up in a few weeks, new life groups. We have Alpha. We have Bible studies going on here on campus and on Zoom all week long. There are all kinds of ways to help you get into the Bible. Get into it. And the third thing is this. Get your questions answered. Do not take what I've told you today as gospel. Allow yourself to prove it to yourself. Because we've only scratched the surface. I invite you to get your questions answered. If you have questions of me, you can do that as well too. Text me, email me throughout the week. This is our Ebenezer. If the book is what it says it is, we should be students of it every day. Because without it, there are sweeping implications. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't know about you, but here is my Ebenezer. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your word. Ever since I was a little boy, I've read and studied your word, and it always amazes me how that there's something true for me at any given moment under all these circumstances. Father, I want my life to be founded on a rock, an Ebenezer. And I want that Ebenezer to be the Word of God. So, Father, I recommit myself right now, and I'm praying that others do, watching online and here in person, would commit, recommit themselves to knowing, believing, and living the truth of God's Word. Let it be our Ebenezer, our stone of remembrance, and help us, Father, to live faithfully by Your Word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.